Welcome to Functional Theology, where pastor and author Chad Ashby talks about theology, scripture, and culture in a world where two and two always seems to make a five. You can find Chad's work at Christianity Today, Desiring God, The Gospel Coalition, and Think Christian. You can follow his personal blog at Aftermath, www.chadashby.com. If you'd like updates about Chad's work, you can follow his author page on Facebook, or you can follow him on Twitter at Chad underscore Ashby. This thing on. Here we go. Red leather, yellow leather. Red leather, yellow leather. All right. I think we're ready. Hey guys, this is Chad Ashby, and thanks for joining me on my podcast. This is my inaugural episode. So if you like it, make sure to share it with your friends. Um, normally, I write stuff online, different platforms. But I spend a lot of time preaching and teaching during the week. I'm a pastor here in Newberry, South Carolina, probably far, far away from wherever you're listening. But um, I know that a lot of people enjoy reading articles online. Maybe you don't have time for that. And so a lot of what this podcast is just going to be is me sharing content that I've written online that you get to listen to. So, you know, the melodic tones coming through and, uh, you know, maybe just a little bit more moving when you hear it from the author as he reads. So uh, today I want to share with you um, a little talk I put together for some college students a little while back. It's about seven objections that people have to reading the Bible. So maybe you're sharing with somebody or maybe even just in your own life, certain objections, roadblocks, things people say, why I shouldn't read the Bible. And I would call this not so much apologetics, maybe pop-pologetics, you know, it's kind of just really sort of pop uh, thoughts, I'm not going to go super deep, not heavy arguments for the validity of scripture. These are just seven common objections you might hear from students or non-Christians or even from people in your church. So here goes, objection number one, only a fool would read a book that's like a thousand years old. Well, to be honest, there are portions of the Bible that are closer to 4,000 years old. So if that's your thinking, it's actually worse than you thought. My question is, aren't you curious? I mean, don't you want to know what people did and believed 4,000 years ago? On top of that, you have to realize that everything we know about history comes through someone's eyewitness testimony. How do you know that in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue? You weren't there. You know about Columbus and Hitler and Abraham Lincoln because someone recorded an eyewitness testimony about those men. You have to accept that testimony on the basis of faith. Now, I pointed out this fact. Now that I've pointed it out, hopefully you won't become a cynical uh, nihilist. Instead, realize that the events recorded in the Bible are no different than those in a non-fiction history book. Both are received as eyewitness testimonies on the basis of faith. One more thing. Have you ever thought about the fact that someone, or a lot of someones, thought it was important to make sure that the Bible made it through 4,000 years of turmoil and hardship so that you could pick it up off the shelf? Objection number two. The books of the Bible were picked at random. 
I'm sure you've heard that there are other Gospels that were unfairly excluded from the Bible. The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel according to a goat, the Book of Common Flatulence. Yes, yes, yes. We all love a good Dan Brown novel. But we have to remember that his books are in the fiction section uh, of Amazon. The Bible was not chosen. It was recognized. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so what's going on is that the people of God are recognizing the voice of God, the Holy Spirit, in the 66 books we find between the covers of our Bible. The church did not arbitrarily choose to exclude some and include others. People who try to tell you that Constantine formed the canon in AD 381 as a political move, are simply fudging the facts. Already around 8200, the uh, Muratorian canon, a manuscript, lists 22 of the 27 books of the New Testament. In AD 367, Athanasius, who uh, had a pretty cool nickname, the Black Dwarf, cited all 27 books in AD 367 as canonical. Additionally, there were other Christian writings at the time, which we call the Early Church Fathers. Uh, I know, books called Fathers, that's just confusing. But the church was able to distinguish between these and the New Testament books. So the books of the Bible were not a result of political espionage or forced orthodoxation. Um, I just made that term up, so copyright pending on that. The book of the, the books of the Bible revealed themselves through the movement of the Holy Spirit in God's people as they recognized their God's voice in the pages. Objection number three. The Bible is full of errors and mistakes. When people raise this objection, they're partly referring to discrepancies between early copies of the Bible. Additionally, people question the reliability of our manuscripts because we don't have the original copies of biblical books. And I hope that's not a surprise to you. It's true. Well, let's just do a little comparison. Plato, he's a famous guy. We have seven manuscripts of his works. The earliest one is from A.D. 900, but Plato lived from 427 to 347 B.C. So, if we do the math, that is a 1,200-year separation between when he lived and our earliest manuscript. Or what about Homer's Iliad? We learn about that in all of our schools. He lived around 900 B.C., and we have 643 manuscripts, but the oldest one is from 400 B.C. That's still 500 years of separation. Now, Compare that to the New Testament. There are 5,686 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament and counting. The earliest manuscript is from around A.D. 130, way less than 100 years after it was written. No one attacks the reliability of Plato's works or Homer's Iliad, so maybe we should lay off the Bible. As far as discrepancies go, the problem is not that the manuscripts don't match up. They match up 99.5% of the time, which is a pretty, it's pretty good for people without a photocopier. The problem is that we have so many manuscripts. We have so many old copies of the Bible that there is an entire science, textual criticism, devoted to figuring out which copies are most accurate. The quote, errors we're trying to resolve are due to how well the Bible actually was preserved. It's not within the breadth of, uh, of our discussion to address the objection that the Bible his, is historically or scientifically inaccurate. Suffice it to say that year after year, archaeology makes finds, findings that are astounding to the scientific community but are old news to those who have read the Bible. 
Objection number four, the Bible is just propaganda. Well, you got us on that one. The Bible is actually trying to get you to believe something. So shame on it. But doesn't every book have a purpose or a thesis that the author is trying to convince you is true? Just because the Bible wants you to believe certain things about the world and God does not make it false. The question is whether the Bible intentionally falsifies details and stories for the purpose of furthering its claims. Ask yourself this. If you were writing about yourself, would you include stories about how you killed somebody by accident? Moses did. If you were trying to promote an organization, would you write about how the head of that organization was a coward and a betrayer? But the Bible includes Peter's denial, and he's supposed to be the rock of the church. If you were trying to boost the cred of your book, would you include the testimonies of two people whose testimonies wouldn't be admissible in court? Well, Luke's two key eyewitnesses to the risen Christ were women whose testimonies at the time wouldn't have been admissible as evidence. Wouldn't you use credible witnesses? The Gnostic Gospels are actually a great example of real propaganda. They were written under false names like Thomas and John so that people would accept them on the basis of apostolic authority. Gnostics claimed to have special insider knowledge that contradicted the teachings of the apostles. So it's not fair to object to the Bible because it has a point. Every book does. Objection number five. The Bible is too violent. Oh, come on. You watch all kinds of movies. Like... Django Unchained and No Country for Old Men, 300, all these war movies. So don't even start telling me the Bible is too violent. What you probably mean is that you don't like how God's people conquer and slaughter other peoples in the Bible. Perhaps you've even bought into the false dichotomy between the violent God of the Old Testament and the loving God of the New Testament. Well, here are two passages from a myriad of choices that express God's love in the Old Testament. Psalm 25, make me to know your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths, lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. What about Isaiah 55? I love this passage. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. God is the same God throughout the whole Bible. A God who is vengeful against his enemies and abundantly forgiving and loving toward his children. So the question for us is, which one are you? He welcomes all men to become his beloved children through Jesus Christ. Objection number six. God can speak to me without the Bible. Well, that's true, I guess. God speaks to people through dreams, events in their lives, etc., etc. However, God gave us his word because in his perfect will, he decided he wanted to speak to us through the word. John 1 calls Jesus the word because he wants us to see that in God's word, we find the son of God. In Luke 24, 27, Jesus explains how the entire Old Testament is about himself. If you're a Christian who sees no need to read God's word, I would encourage you to read Psalm 119, 9 through 18. Why isn't your attitude toward the statutes which God has 
so graciously given us like the psalmist in Psalm 119. God reveals himself to his people in the words of scripture and he wants to meet you there. Objection number seven, our last one, the Bible. Man, it's so boring. Have you ever just sat and really read the Bible or are you just assuming it's boring? The Bible contains stories about youths being mauled by mountain lions, left-handed spies stabbing obese kings and escaping off the roof, floating axe heads, people being raised back to life, bizarre dreams, battles, wars, acts of valor, romance, worldwide flood, uh, parting of seas, self-sacrifice, and the cross. If the Bible was just some boring book, would John Wycliffe and Martin Luther and many others have been willing to suffer intense persecution just for trying to get the Bible into the hands of common people like you and me? Would John Huss have been willing to burn at the stake for a book that he used as a doorstop? I don't think so. So let's stop making excuses and start reading. And I mean really read the Bible. If you've never read the Bible before, I'd recommend the book of John. It's a great place to start. And may you find the glory of God in the face of Christ. Thanks for joining me. Until next time. Thanks for joining us. This has been Functional Theology with Chad Ashby. If you'd like to follow Chad, you can find his author page on Facebook. You can also follow him on Twitter at Chad underscore Ashby. And make sure to drop by his personal blog, Aftermath, www.chadashby.com.